Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Lauren, are we live? And then I say, we're live, Dr. Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're live with Gross Anatomy, eh? We're live with Gross Anatomy. Where we, where we discuss... You go, go for ahead, it. Lauren. You take it. <laughs> we explore the sights, sounds, and smells of medicine and how it pertains to pop culture, books, TV, movies, um, and the world around us. Exactly. And right. I am Dr. Jason Cohen. And we have a special guest today. You want to introduce Wait, you didn't say who you are. Oh, I'm Lauren Taylor. And there you go. And today we're joined by, you know, you've always kind of been a little bit of a hero. I've always kind of had a little bit of worship of you. But but after after being on your on your radio show and, and just really loving it and just loving listening to it. You're now one of my heroes, and, and <laughs> I'm talking. So, so we have Dr. Robert Clapper. Do you go? You go by Robbie, though. You can call me Robbie. That's how. When people call my office because it's a three month wait to get into my office, my uh, the people answering the phone will say, uh, "So here's the next appointment." Oh no, I'm an old friend of Bob's, and when <laughs> they do that, they go, "You're no old friend." Of <laughs> But if nice. they say it's just, I'm an old friend of Robbie's, they'll go, okay, you can come tomorrow. <laughs> ah, nice. Exactly. We might so, have to edit that out. I don't want to give away that secret. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. I know. We'll have to edit that's that out fine. for sure. <laughs> so, so um, you know, as you know, the whole reason, one of the reasons you had me on your show is is we talked about the, the pre-med mentoring program. So, and and I can't wait to have you on our on our pre med program, um, and and so I, we've been doing it already for like six years. So I'm kind of used to interviewing interviewing docs, but I just want to play Jewish geography with you a little bit. I, I think we've done it once before. Um, clearly, you're you're from Mississippi. You can tell by your accent. <laughs> My 1983, I'm an intern. I just finished medical school in New York at Columbia. I can't wait to do an internship at Cedars because I read the book, The House of God, where the fat man wanted to do the bowel run of the stars. And I knew I was going to be starting a very intense residency in orthopedic surgery at the Hospital for Special Surgery back in New York, which really didn't care where I did my internship. So I figured I need a break because for financial reasons, my dad was a carpenter. Uh, my mom was a nurse. Uh, to go to college, go to med school, I had to go to work and pay for it. There was no money in the house. So every free weekend, free holiday, I was working in the Catskill Mountains. I was just working, working, working. Wow. You, I got to just cut you off. There's so much stuff. There's so much stuff that, oh. that I have to ask you. So wait a minute. This, this interview, I think this is going to have to be like a five-part thing, by the way. <laughs> I, I don't know if you know, we actually had the author of The House of God on our podcast. Samuel Shem? Yeah, we had him on uh, wow. about six, what, six months, pre, right at the start of, uh, COVID, yeah. of uh, the pandemic. Yeah. Well, I came to Cedars because the fat man wanted to go to Cedars sign. I never knew. I, it was because you know, that's that funny. Book. I, you know, I read House of God also, and we had Shem on our show, and Part of why we had him on our show was to talk about his follow-up book, uh, the sequel, which which also has a fat man in it. You should read it. It's interesting, especially with healthcare today. Um, 
But I don't remember Cedar Sinai being in House of God. They didn't mention it by name, but they mentioned like movie stars and he's going to Los Angeles to take it. And like, it was, it was shocking. And I figured, okay, everybody complains about their internship. It's every other night. It's surgery. It's intense. I'm going to have that in my residency. I'm going to Cedars. So the reason you mentioned Mississippi, you can tell my first day at Cedars, and they don't do this anymore. Fortunately, I did a St. Luke's Roosevelt ICU rotation, so at least I knew what dopamine drips were. I knew how to take care of really sick people. So July 1st, I show up for my internship, and they give me the the beeper. I go, what's this? Oh, by the way, you're going to be on call for the 7th and 8th floor ICU. 5885. I still remember the extension. And that was <laughs> how many years ago? 1983. And the yeah. nurse looks at me. She says, and by the way, you're on call today. I go, I just got here. It's the first day. It's 20 ICU beds. The sickest pay. You can't put me on call. Yes, you're on call, Dr. Clapper. She goes, and what's your name? Clapper? How do you spell that? I said, it's Clapper. She goes, okay, I got to <laughs> write it on the board for the nurses to call you. So she writes K-L-A-P-P-A-H. Clapper. Is that right? Exactly. I go, yeah, that's my name. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's like me, me and all my buddies growing up in New York. Uh, all of them had R's at the end. So like it was Kenny Helfa, Jeremy Garba, you know, n- none of them had the, and I spoke that way too, but I, I deliberately, when I went off to college, I said, I got to try to lose it a little bit. Well, you know, my daughter was born in New York, but my wife, Ellen, is from here. And I remember as a little girl, I took her to the zoo and I said, Michelle, Look at that animal. It's a panther. So she comes home, she says to my wife, what's a panther? <laughs> exactly. My, my kids will still make fun of me, you know, certain words I'll say, and they, they love to just make fun of me. Do your kids make fun of you? Uh, yes. Are you kidding? I am the, uh, the butt of all the jokes uh, for many generations in my yeah. house. So what part of New York did you grow up in? I grew up in a place called Far Rockaway, which anytime you meet someone from a place that has both far and away in the name, look out. <laughs> yeah, I nice. tell people, you know how you get to my house? You make a left at the gunfight. That's how you get to my house. I went to Far Rockaway High School. and so It was uh, the five towns and Rockaway, right? We were the poor side of town. My father worked as a carpenter for the rich people in Cedarhurst in the five towns. But we lived on the on the other side of the railroad tracks. And uh, so- Where in the Catskills did you work? I worked lots of places. I was working there while I was still underage because that was the only way I was going to be able to make money. So I worked at, um, not Grossinger's, I worked at the Concord, I worked at Kutcher's, I worked at the Homowack, I worked at Gilbert's, and I did many different jobs lifeguard, waiter, busboy. I worked in the strippers uh, two o'clock in the morning. I, I did uh, I did everything I could. 17 hours a day I would work. Um, and and I was, was, I was a little, I, I guess I was luckier than you. My, my dad was a lawyer. So we used to actually go to the Catskills yeah. over Christmas, Christmas break. I, I was there taking care of you. Yeah, parking the car and working right. in the uh, in the nightclub, working the dinner. Uh, oh man, I could tell you stories that would. I remember there was a singles weekend one day. This is how naive I was. The singles weekend, so all these women come up, divorcees, whatever it is. I'm 16 years old, and the only break I get is in between meals. So uh, to go to the swimming pool, which was just for the people that worked there, but at least it was hot as hell in the summer. And I remember. 
36 people I'm the busboy for. And I'm just like, come on, I, will you just finish the dessert already? And this is 36 Jewish people who all want everything on the menu all at the same time. And exactly. by the way, you don't get paid unless you make them happy because you have to work for tips. Right. So this one lady would not leave the table. The whole dining room's cleared out. I have the one person who's still in the dining room. She won't leave. And I'm going, you know, I want to go to the swimming pool. I want to get out of here. So finally, she keeps looking at me. I'm looking at her. I'm, I'm the busboy. I'm 16 years old. She gets up. She takes her room key and wraps a $5 bill around it. And as she gets up, she throws it on the table. Okay. I don't know from nothing. I go up. I pick up the key. I go, lady, you forgot your key. Nice. That's great. Needless to so say. That, that, that would have been the start of a great movie, but you, you kind of ruined it there. <laughs> My whole life has been, I, I, I can, you know, give you a few stories if you want. Um, so here's one of them. My dad, who I really loved, he was the most honorable, honest man, worked in the post office for eight hours, and then he'd work another eight hours every day as a carpenter, remodeling basements, putting a roof on, redoing kitchens. And so I never really got to see him except for a half an hour at dinner where he had to kiss me and spank me all at the same time. Um, <laughs> but I used to be able to spend time on the weekends with him. And he fought in World War II. He never was able to go to college because he had to help support his family during the Depression. He was born in 1915. But he was the most honorable guy, and I really just loved my dad. But he always felt second class because he never went to college and he was not a very good businessman. So on the weekends, I would, I got to be big and strong. I didn't go to the gym. I would be schlepping his tools, his saws, his drills. And we'd go into the rich people's houses who he was redoing their kitchen, their basement, or whatever it is. And every weekend he would say to me, now, Robbie, don't touch anything in this house. Don't break anything because a doctor lives here. A lawyer lives here. Uh, this one lives here. That so my whole life with him, you know, eight years old, 10 years old, I'm schlepping the tools, feeling like we're the B team. You know, yeah. this, is, this is our place in life. We're here to take care of these people. So that's fine. That, that was being ingrained in me. And I went to this public high school, overcrowded, 1,200 kids in the high school. And so it's the 1968 Olympics, Mexico City. I'm 11 years old. And we live near Jamaica Bay which was this huge expanse. Um, and we didn't live on the bay, a couple of blocks, but you could see it from my house. And I had a little rowboat, which allowed me to escape the craziness in my house, the stress financially, everything that was going on. I would go and row on the water of Jamaica Bay. This is how I got away from the craziness in my house. And uh, so he's watching the Olympics this one day. It's 1968 Olympics. And you remember that scene in Risky Business where he's got his socks on and he goes sliding? Yeah. On the TV, he's watching the Olympics, my father. They're rowing. And I blurred out, oh, my God, there's rowing in the Olympics. I know track and field and gymnastics. I didn't know rowing. And I blurred out, I would love to do that one day. As I'm sliding with my socks, you know, behind right. this chair, um, I would love to do that. And my father, again, I love him to death, he turned in his chair and he said, I'm sorry, Robbie, you can't. And I said, wow. I said, why? He said, because that's, that's something only kids who go to Ivy League schools get to do. No one from this neighborhood 
goes to Ivy League schools. And I remember, number one, I had no idea what an Ivy League school was. And I remember at that moment saying, F this. Yeah. You, you want to live like that, that, that we get to watch other people have a life with a B team? I'm going to prove to you that you don't have to think that way. Now, I'm not the brightest guy in the, in the room. I don't have all these Jason Cohn God-given brain talents, you know, <laughs> which I really respect tremendously. But I know that there's 24 hours in the day and maybe I don't have to sleep, so I get an extra eight hours over everybody else. That's all I knew about life. And I remember at that moment saying to myself, I'm going to go find out what the hell an Ivy League school is. And I'm going to go to one so that he can say at least his son went there and stop thinking like this, whatever this is. So I went to the library. And I at age up, 11. This is age 11. 11. And I looked up what the hell an Ivy League school is. And you know, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Penn, Cornell, Dartmouth, Brown, there's like seven of them. And when it came time for me to apply to college, and I did... I didn't get 1,600 on the SATs, but I did okay in school. But my dad's right. I ain't getting into any Ivy League school. So what I did was, in a very innocent way, because I love to row my rowboat, no idea you know, what rowing really was, and I wrote a letter to the crew coaches, the rowing team at Penn, at Yale, at Columbia, at all these, and I poured my guts out. I'm on the swimming team in my high school because that's what we have, but I really love to row. Tell me how you train. Tell me how you work out, because my dream one day would be to row for the University of Pennsylvania, for Columbia University, or whatever it was. And I'm, you know, now I'm like 15 years old. I'm applying, you know, think of applying <clears throat> to colleges. I send this out, and not every uh, one of the seven, but I don't know, four or five of them. I'll never forget, I kissed the mailman this one day. I got a letter back from... Yale University with the raised lettering on it was blue on a white uh, envelope. I like, oh my God, the the university wrote me back. I couldn't believe it. And it was the crew coach at Penn, at Columbia, at Yale. Dear Robert, we wake up at five in the morning and we run three miles. Then we work on the ergometer. This is what I hope one day that you can make your dream come true and row here at, you know, Columbia University. And I saved the letters. Wow. And I never, I never lied. I never lied. But I always would let you make an assumption, and that's up to you. So when I applied to these schools, then I have no money to pay for it. I mean, it's a mess. Yeah. But I'm, I'm like on a mission to, to at least show him that it could happen. And I fill out my application, I send it. And so you can imagine, you know, the SATs I got, I was number 19 out of 1,200 kids in my graduating class. But let me tell you, number 30 was a Neanderthal who just discovered fire yesterday. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, the competition yeah. was not that great. Yeah. But anyway, I, I did okay in school and it did a lot of activity. But anyway, I'm not getting into any Ivy League school. But I stuck the letter in my application to the colleges. And you can only imagine you're in the admissions office. They've got thousands. They open up the Farquhar High School. Who cares what he got on the SAT? Forget about him. They're going to throw it in the reject pile. But if they open up the application, there's a letter from their crew coach. They must be assuming they heard of Robbie Clapper. They must be recruiting him. So what do they do? They put it in the pile for an interview. 
So I'll, I'll never forget this. I'm sitting at the kitchen table. I'm 16 years old, hearing back from the schools. And again, struggle, money was really always very tight. So I went to work in the Catskills to pay for everything, even my clothes. And I remember sitting at the kitchen table and I said, Dad, can I ask you a question? Yeah, Robbie. Should I take the train to Princeton, New Jersey for my interview at Princeton and then take the bus to New Haven for my interview at Yale? Or should I just take the bus to both places? And I, my father looks at me and he goes, Robbie, I love you very much, but I can't help you. This is not supposed to be happening. You're on your own. And it was, wow. it was I remember the moment where I said, Okay, at least I got a dad that loves me. I, I, I'm ahead of the game, but I'm going to have to figure this out. And you'll, I'll never forget this. I go to Princeton. I'm at Princeton on a recruiting weekend. They don't just have fraternities at Princeton. They're called eating clubs. Right. These guys actually bring their own chef to go to college. Can you imagine? Yeah. They're called eating clubs, okay? And people who row crew, they don't look like me. They look like gigantic <laughs> Brad Pitts, okay? That's what they look right. like, okay? They're, right. they're all, their shoulders are out to here and their waist is this big. So there's three recruits. I, and I, I could not make this up. One of the other recruits, so we're sitting at dinner and they bang the glass and the coach says, okay, we got three recruits, uh, uh, gentlemen, um, for the crew team visiting us here at Princeton in the eating club today. I want to introduce them. Biff. Literally, the guy's name was Biff. Biff, Well, you stand up, six foot five, he stands up, his shoulders, like, you know, touch both walls in the room. Uh, Yes, uh, I'm uh, at Phillips Andover Academy, and it's very nice to meet you guys. This giant guy, he likes, you know, he sits down. Then, I swear to God, uh, and you introduce yourself. Yes, my name's Chip. I have Biff and a Chip. Chip stands up. Uh, Yes, I go to Choate, uh, you know, prep school. Uh, and it's really nice to meet you guys, and thanks for dinner. And our third recruit, Robbie Clapper from Far Rockaway High School. And I remember <laughs> as I was standing up, I'm going, my father's right. I'm really not supposed to be here. But you know what? Wait, did you have, like, a sign on you saying Jewish kid? <laughs> it was pretty obvious when I asked for the matzo balls or what those matzo balls floating in the soup. But anyway, I uh, – and I was very lucky. I ended up, uh, I had choices to make. And I ended up going to Columbia, where, uh, which really changed what choices? my life. And, and I'll just tell you one other story, because I can tell Wait, What were stories. the choices between Columbia or what? Penn and Yale. Wow. And I got a scholarship for financial reasons. Uh, and someone from the 1929 Columbia crew became a hedge fund giant. He had a son who was pre-med who passed away and he made a scholarship for someone who would be pre-med who wanted a row crew. And I was the Sykes, S-Y-K-E-S scholar at Columbia. I didn't get a free ride. I had to work. That's a whole nother story. I remember going one, one year, my sophomore year, whatever it is, I go early to the school because I, <clears throat> I need a job to work on campus while I'm going to school. I got to be able to pay for food and all the rest. So I got to have a job on campus. I'll never forget this. I go to the employment office at Columbia and there's this girl chewing gum. She could give a rip about anybody. And they have this giant book of jobs on campus. 
So I walk in the office. She, I pick, I go, can I just see the book? Yeah, you can look at the book, but there's no more jobs. I go, it's a week before school starts. You got a whole book here. And they're all gone. I go, that's it? Yeah. What part of there's no more jobs did you not understand? This is what she says to me as she's chewing gum. I looked at her. I go, there's got to be something. Buddy, there's no more jobs. So I open up the book. She says, all those red tags means all the jobs are gone. So I see one that has a green tag. I go, does this mean this job's open? Oh, yeah, that job's open. It's the only one that's open. What is that job? Bowling alley repairman. She says, we haven't had a bowling alley repairman in five years because nobody knows how to fix a bowling alley. I go, I know how to fix a bowling alley. She goes, well, then you have a job. I have no idea, by the way, how to fix a bowling alley. And I remember showing up the first day as the bowling alley repairman. They had this place with all these bowling alleys. They had three bowling alleys. Two of them were working. One was broken for five years. So they needed a repairman. (laughs) You would appreciate this, Jason. So I go the first day and people are bowling. I take the paddles off the two that are working. There's like 50 belts going in all different directions. And I look at the one that's broken and it doesn't seem to have one of the belts. So I finagle the belt, I press the button, and all of a sudden, so now I'm out of a job because I just fixed the broken bowling alley. So I quickly, like, shut it off. Anyway. Uh, oh, that's so great. You I rode crew at Columbia? Columbia? What's that? You rode crew? I rode crew. That was a great story, too, because my parents, all they did was work. They never treated themselves to a vacation. They never did anything and never went to a sporting event. So. I invite my mother and my father. I said, listen, I'm rowing crew at Columbia. You should come at least to one of the meets. We're rowing against Navy and Yale at New Haven. There's a river there. You should come watch the race. So I learned this from another guy on on the team with me whose parents were also at the finish line. You know, his father had one of those uh, London fog jackets with the patches and he smoked a pipe. You know, yeah. and, Abra- and Abraham Clapper and Lillian Clapper are at the finish line with them, right? So as we come flying down the race, we miss beating Yale by like a foot. This is a 2,000-meter race. They're like, it's so close. What I found out later, apparently, my mother at the finish line in front of all these hoity-toity people screams out, oh, shit, they should put him <laughs> in a boat by himself He's better than all of them. Oh, that's great. <laughs> My father was hiding behind a tree at this point. Nice. Anyway. Nice. What, you know, I knew, I think I told you this. I grew up with a whole bunch of clappers um, it, from New York. Did, did you have a lot of clapper relatives or? No. That you knew were, about? My mother told me that if you find one, they're all horse thieves in Russia. That's how we're related to them. But I want to give, I want to leave giving you for your listeners the most important message I can give, particularly about medicine and as it relates to us talking right now, because I wound up going to Columbia and not to Yale or Penn or any other school, Columbia made me take an art history class. Half the credits to graduate were in philosophy and humanity. They didn't care whether you're a physicist English major, pre-law, pre-med, you had to take these, it's called the core curriculum. Which, what was your major? So this is what happened. 
I, I, my freshman year, I'm taking all the chemistry pre-med courses. And now my second year, they forced me because I didn't want to. I'm from Far Rockaway. I'd never been to a museum and I was proud of it. I don't want to, I'm only here yeah. to get A's so I get into medical school. That was the function. I'm not here to learn anything. But my sophomore year, the first semester, they pulled me by the ear. To, I have to take this Fakakta art history class. So I go to the class begrudgingly. I'm sitting there. The professor, about to turn off the lights to, to start the slideshow, he turns to the class and he says, by the way, I hope none of you are pre-med because I don't give A's. This is how he starts. The, and then, you know, proceeds to shut the lights off. To start the, <laughs> at this point, I'm sitting there going, well, I'm not going to be in this class if you're not going to do this because that's yeah. the only reason I'm here. I'm not here to learn anything. And at this moment, with the first slide, he puts up a painting by Renoir. And he says, uh, it's like it's happening yesterday, and this is 1975, 76, I'm telling you. He says, I want you all to appreciate the visual noise in the corner of this painting. And I remember sitting there, as I'm putting my books in my knapsack, because I'm going to get out of this class on the first day. <laughs> it, it, it was like Cupid shot me with an arrow in my forehead. Because I never... I, I just have to interrupt you. I love the story, but I love that you said knapsack because I say knapsack to my kids and they make fun of me when I call oh, yeah. it a knapsack. Yeah, yeah. And I love that you said forehead uh, forehead, because that's exactly what I call it. it. So Okay, sorry. I just had to... Okay. Listen, Jason, my job tonight is to entertain you. If anybody else wants to get a kick out that's of it, it, that's fine. Exactly. So I now am putting my books in my knapsack and he says... <laughs> visual noise and it was like what I, in, in far rockaway it's illegal to put the word visual and noise together because if it's visual you see it if it's noise you hear it, you can't have the two of them together yeah and it stopped me in my tracks and now all of a sudden a little angel appears on my left shoulder and a little devil appears on my right shoulder and the devil says you got to get out of this class <laughs> You're not here to learn anything. You got to get an A. You got to get out of this class. You got to. Then the angel goes, This guy just used the word visual noise together to describe something. Robbie, this is probably the smartest person you've ever met. He's going to be able to teach you things that you've never learned before. You should stay in the class, forget the grade, learn something. So I got the angel and the devil, and I, and I made a decision, which, you know, if you're pre-med and you don't get into med school, you got nothing. I really felt, there, particularly if I'm working and I have to maintain a certain a, a, a grade average to get uh, the scholarship, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on me to do well. And I remember saying, you know what, Robbie? This guy's going to teach you something. That's really what it's all about. You may not get in, whatever, but you should stay. And I stayed in the class, okay? This guy changed my life. What was his name? Uh, David Roseanne. He recently passed away because he was such a hard ass, but he was the best. And he became chairman of the Department of Art History at Columbia. 
I can tell you to this day, the final exam, three-hour test. Remember the blue books you had to fill out? Oh, yeah. Three-hour exam, one question. Compare and contrast Pablo Picasso's three musicians. You guys can Google it if you want to see what I'm talking about. Basically, it's a painting Picasso did of three African masks playing Cubist instruments. Compare and contrast Pablo Picasso's three musicians to Renoir's Madame Carpentier and her children. Here's a bourgeois lady sitting on the couch with a dog and the kids, a beautiful portrait. Compare and contrast. And I'm like, look at this. That one question, three hours to answer it. And I'm saying to myself, what am I going to do? I kept looking at the painting, looking at the paintings, and I realized if you look closely at the Picasso painting, where the hole in the masks are for the eyes, you don't see any pupils. What do you see? The wall behind the musicians is brown. If you look through the holes in the masks, you see the back wall. In other words, there's no one behind the mask. It's just that when you think about it, you walk into a room, people playing music, you don't care about their identity. This is a story of a woman's portrait that if Renoir doesn't make it look exactly like her, he ain't getting paid. So I started writing with these blue books. I wrote and I wrote and I wrote for three hours. P.S. He gives me an A in the final and I get an A in the class. So now I'm asked to declare a major. The question you just asked me, what you major in? So I go to my advisor at Columbia, this jerk, you know, and everybody's lined up in his lobby because you got to meet with your advisor. So he's got like, I don't know, 200 people that he's got to. I walk in the room. He's also chewing gum. Okay, what's your name? Clapper. Okay, yeah. Uh, you're pre-med. Yeah, okay, yeah. All right, here's the deal. You're going to have to major in biochemistry, biology, or chemistry. If you want physics, I, I go, wait a minute. Time out. I just took the greatest course I've ever taken or thought of. Or I didn't even know about it. Art history. I'd love to major. Can I major in art history? The guy looks at me and goes, did you hear what I just said, son? If you do that, you're never going to get into medical school. It's suicide. I'm your advisor, okay? Did you hear what I say? Now get out of here. You know, like, okay, great. And I remember walking <laughs> out of the guy's office saying to myself, here's another guy I'm not going to listen to in life. And I majored in art history. I took a senior thesis class on Vesalius, the anatomy textbook from an art historical and a scientific standpoint. I did as a senior with him as my advisor. So now, Jason, I go to apply to, a, I go and apply to medical school. Vanderbilt, Columbia, all these fancy schmancy schools. I go into the interview. They look at me and they go, wait a minute. You're an art history major. This is 1979, by the way. You're yeah. an art history major at Columbia? I've never seen that before. And I'm going, oh, boy, here's the suicide part. They're going to drop the hammer on me. And they would say to me, tell me something about Michelangelo or, you know, Renoir. And I would just start talking. Every medical school I applied to, I got into because wow. I was a history major. And here's the best part. It made me think creatively. So I start my orthopedic residency, 1984, at the Hospital for Special Surgery, where all my attendings invented the knee replacement, the shoulder replacement. And I said, 
I want to be just like them. So I got my very first patent on tools that are used all over the world, millions of cases. Think about the royalties, millions of cases. Pope John Paul II broke his hip. They put a prosthesis in. They used my tools to revise his hip. Wow. And I credit, that's why I'm telling you the story. That decision to be an art history major and be creative has allowed me to be on the radio and interview you. It has allowed me to, to patent things. It's allowed me to write books and not only be a happy, joyous surgeon, busy, busy, busy orthopedic, but to bring joy through art and creativity to my life. If you go on my website, you'll see the marble sculptures that I make. You'll see them at the hospital, at the blood bank. You'll see them on the seventh floor at Robertson. And I remember when you brought it. I remember when you brought it into the seventh floor. That's yep. So, so that all goes back to that moment where I brought creativity to whatever the podcast listeners are doing with their life. Study art history. You'll be a better lawyer. You'll be a better doctor. You'll be a better nurse. You'll be a better person when you start to appreciate what Michelangelo did with a hammer and a chisel. I think that's great. I think um, I, I definitely agree with the art thing, but I think, you know, one thing I tell all of our pre-med students is, is just to take other stuff, whether it's art or whatever. I say, you know, you're going to have plenty of time to be just doing the science, you know, right. the time to, to explore in college is, you know, take weird, wacky stuff. And I think, you know, I, I think I told you as well, I was also an art major. This I, is I was why we get along so well, because that, you yeah. get it. You understand it. And now we've got two peas in a pot, you and me, which is a dangerous thing. Um, right. but, but I want everybody to appreciate. Because you know what I, I love about you, Jason? You, you, you transmit the joyous part of, you know, I did, I did four big surgeries today, a shoulder replacement. I did two hip replacements. One of the patients, six foot six, 285 pounds. And then I did a knee replacement. I did four big surgeries, different body parts. And I'm here doing this podcast with you. I, I can go do another 10 surgeries. <laughs> yeah. Because I love what I do so, just like you do. Whereas most doctors these guys are going to meet, they're all bitching and moaning about how terrible it is, but not when they meet Jason Cohn and not when they meet Robbie Clapper. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I had a different experience from, with my art in college I had, um, he wasn't really my advisor. The head, the head of the art department was uh, like an abstract sculptor, um, but like weird, wacky stuff. And I remember I was supposed to be at some art meeting um, for the major. And instead I was swimming, actually. I was doing laps in the pool and I'm finishing my laps and, and he's there too. And he and I, he, he, he's like, you're not at the lecture. We were both <laughs> supposed to be there, and we're both and we're both swimming instead. And then when I got into med school, I remember him saying to me, "So you snuck into med school?" So that was, that was kind of his. He's like, "Oh, how did you sneak into med school?" Yeah, you. But, uh, that's why I have to tell you a story about sneaking out too. 1983. I'm an intern in general surgery at Cedars, um, and then I went off to special surgery. There used to be a hot dog place across the street from Cedars. Before they built the Sophie Tell Hotel, it was a used car lot in 1983. 
And next to it was the hot dog stand called the tail of the pup, right? Right. So I'm on Jack Matloff's cardiac surgery rotation as an intern where there are explicit rules. You are not allowed to leave the premises because they could need you, whatever it is. I'm only an intern. What am I? But that was the rule. So I get, I'm going back to New York. My good friend, he's an ENT surgeon, Andy Berman. Love this guy. He did nothing but get me into trouble. He calls me, goes, Robbie, before you go back to New York, we have to have lunch and I need to take you to this place. It's iconic in LA. There's no place like it. It's, ch- it's shaped like a giant hot dog. It's right across. I go, Andy, I'm on cardiac surgery. I cannot leave the hospital. He says to me, come on, I got to tell you, know, this is like, what is it uh, in the Garden of Eden with the snake talking to right. her about the apple? Yes. This is what I have with Andy Berman. He's like hocking me like, okay, come on. It'll just be a few minutes. No one's going to know. It'll open. Okay. So I got my white coat on, my scrubs. I'm on cardiac surgery. Jack Matlock, may he rest in peace who's the meanest, baddest dude there is. (laughs) So he schleps me across the street on Beverly Boulevard, and I'm now eating next to a used car lot with blue smoke from these used cars, pigeons pooping on the hamburgers. I mean, it was disgusting to be at this place. (laughs) But it's shaped like a giant hot dog, right? And I'm eating it. Isn't this great? He says to me, isn't this bad? We're the only ones eating there with the pigeons above us and the blue smoke. It's just disgusting to be eating in this parking lot. When all of a sudden, there used to be a show called Good Day L.A., they decide that they're going to go look for the iconic places to eat in Los Angeles. So they have a television crew, right? So they go up to these two people who are eating these hot dogs, (laughs) and they said, aren't you a little bit scared about eating uh, these hot dogs in this, you know, parking lot with the pigeons all over? It's, like, disgusting. You get sick from this. And the lady says, I'm not worried. Because those two doctors over there, because we had white, I have my white coat on. Those two right. doctors over there are eating here. It's got to be safe, right? So next thing you know, the television crew's turning itself to interview, and I'm talking to <laughs> Andy Berman, and I said, "Okay, Andy, I really got to go back." He goes, he says to me, "Will you just relax, Robbie? Because I may even get you on television." I go, television. <laughs> I don't want to be on television. No one has to know that I'm here right now. And all of a sudden, the TV cameras are coming to us to interview us about eating at this place. And I'm going, oh, my God. So I figured I would say the most obnoxious thing so they would cut it out so we would not be on television. So they said, so what do you like about eating here? I looked at them. I go, nothing. Look at the pigeons. <laughs> Look at the, the used car, the fumes. It's this, this is not a place to eat lunch, right? Thank you. This is what they kept in the interview, okay? So I'm making <laughs> rounds the next day, right? In with, with Jack Matloff. He's just done heart surgery on all these people. We're in a room. I got the white I'm the lowly intern. There's the patient. He had surgery the day before. You know Cedars. There's the bed, and there's the TV up on the wall. All of a sudden, the patient, who's barely alive, he had heart <laughs> surgery yesterday, goes... <laughs> There's Dr. Clapper. And Matloff goes, what are you doing? <laughs> That's amazing. That's a great story. How come that didn't start your reality TV career? Because I don't want to eat with pigeons. Thank you very right. much. There you go. Let me ask you a question. You have the radio show. How long have you had the radio show for? Ten years. No. Yes. I started it. Kobe Bryant did the promo 
you you heard Kobe Bryant. I heard he it. Loved the show, and I started it uh, two thousand uh, February two thousand eleven. So this February is going to be ten years, and it was the season right after they won uh, with Pau Gasol the championship. And um, I have absolutely no training in being on the radio. I have no training, but how that's a whole nother story about how that came about. But it's the number one show on the radio for the weekend. And, how did it come um, about? Okay, you want to hear the story? I do. I adopted, for want of a better term, a young USC pre-medical student from Hawaii. So I, I've had many kids shadow me, didn't know about your program, over the years. Right. And it, it takes a lot of time. You know, you, you just finish having one shadow, you almost need a break. So I had this young kid, he finished up with me, and then I was taking a break. And then I start getting emails by this one kid. Please, Dr. Clapper, I'm a college student. I want to be a, okay, it's like, I delete, delete. I'm not, I just, I'm not ready yet. I'm not, yeah. I'm, yep. so. I take this kid on because in one of his emails, he says, please, Dr. Clapper, I really want to be with you. I heard so much about you. And he types in his phone number with an 808 area code. I go, he's from Hawaii. Oh, my God. Okay. So I call him back and I take him (laughs) under my wings. And it's been a beautiful, I've been to his wedding. This happened 10 years ago. That's when I, uh, no, even before, it's maybe 13 years. Oh, it's a long time ago. So I adopt this kid. And um, he's, he finishes college, finishes medical school, finishes his orthopedic res, and now he's a orthopedic surgeon in Honolulu, which is oh, great, wow. where he's from. But it is now 2009. So Dr. Oz, right? Mem- Mehmet Oz. I've written a bunch of books uh, about how to avoid surgery, hips, knees, and the book Heal Your Knees had come out. What I don't know is Dr. Oz hurt his knee. I get an email from him. I see you wrote a book. I have a radio show on the Oprah Winfrey Network. Um, I'd love to interview you. When do I have time to, to fly to New York to spend time to be on the radio with Dr. I have no time. So I right. took a Tuesday. I just took the day. I flew Monday night to Red Eye, <clears throat> came back Tuesday night. I literally did not get a hotel room. And he shares his waiting room with the Howard Stern show. So you can imagine how wild this was. Wow. Because they were having a guy on who was talking about Michael Jackson. And I was in the emergency room as an intern in surgery in 1983 with David Alessi when Michael Jackson burned his hair on fire. I was the intern who got to help take care of him. So that's a whole wow. other story. So I'm talking to these guys in the, in the waiting room about it. But I... Now I'm on the Dr. Oz show on radio. He doesn't have a TV show yet. This is July of 2009. <clears throat> and I don't know why he's, I just figured he saw the book that I wrote. I don't know that he actually tore his meniscus. And instead of going to an orthopedic surgeon in New York, he decides he's going to get free advice from me by having right. to step all the way to New York to be able to be interviewed. Okay. Right. So, but he did his homework. He knew that I sculpted in marble. He knew I had, he knew everything about me. And the, the radio show is so successful because of something called Clapper Vision. Just like I talked about art, what I'm able to do is I'm able to say, my knee hurts, or the person, someone will say, it's swollen, it's painful. Mm-hmm. They tell me it's a torn meniscus. 
Can I have it trimmed? Do I have it repaired? And I will use clapper vision to say, your meniscus is like a slice of apple pie. If you tear the meniscus where the crust is, the circulation is great. We put stitches in, you can repair the meniscus. But if you tear it by the tip of the apple pie slice, there's no circulation there. You have to trim that one. So I painted a picture immediately. It's called clapper vision. It's metaphors, basically. I like that. So I start doing this on the Dr. Oz show. And at one point, the board operator bangs on the window, the clear glass, and goes, Mehmet, we have to take a commercial. He goes, shh, don't interrupt Dr. Clapper. I mean, he, <laughs> he could not get enough of what I was doing. And it was terrific. I did an hour show with him. And I flew back to Los Angeles. But that put the bug in me. Yeah. That television's great, but I love the radio. My father used to listen to the radio all the time, and I think that was a connection for me as well. So I'm at a Starbucks. A friend of mine says, did you hear? ESPN is going to have a West Coast station. Not only Bristol, but they're going to open one in Los Angeles, and they're going to take the Laker broadcast. And I'm a huge Laker fan. Right. I'll tell you why in a second. Not the Knicks? I grew up the Knicks fan, but I'm going to tell you why I became a huge Laker fan and why I had season tickets for the entire length of Kobe's career. Um, so I now start feeling in my chest, I have to figure out how to be a part of the radio with ESPN because this really touched me. So I have season tickets since Kobe is a rookie, uh, 1996, and they're now 2010 in the playoffs. Andrew Bynum is playing, uh, Lamar Odom is on the team, Kobe's on the team, and it's a Tuesday night game, they're playing the Houston Rockets, and Andrew Bynum once again has hurt his knee. But I decide, um, you know, I'm going to get there early for the Tuesday night game, because I'm a huge Laker fan and whatnot, and it's going to be standing room only where you're going to park the car the whole bit. I said to my wife, okay, there's a game tonight, we have to go. She says, Robbie, I can't go because uh, my dad is, her dad was sick. Why don't you call that kid that you adopted from Hawaii and take him? So I call him, Dan, you want to? Yeah, sure. So I get there extra early to meet him to go to the game. So I'm now in LA Live in front of the Staples Center, and ESPN has just started. And they immediately, after 30 years, steal the Laker broadcast from KLAC, because now it's going to be on ESPN, this brand new station in LA, which is the studios across the street from the Staples Center. So I'm sitting there, 10,000 people milling about, waiting for this Hawaiian kid to show up, Daniel Lim. And what did they do? They have the Kia Motors pregame show broadcast, not in the studio, in LA Live, just so everybody should see that now there's a new station. Dave Denholm, Brian Long, the two guys doing Kia Motors. And I'm sitting there minding my own business, waiting for this kid to show up. And I hear them do the pregame show. And all of a sudden... Brian Long says to Dave Denholm in the pregame show, oh, my God, we just heard Andrew Bynum. He partially tore his medial collateral ligament. Oh, my God, Dave, what's going to happen? Is he going to play tonight? Is he not going to play? You know, let's go to a Kia Motors commercial break. I stand up. I was chief of the division of orthopedics at the time, which is, you know, was a bit. I did it for four years as the chief and then four more years as the clinical chief term limits. But at the time, I'm the chief of the division. And I stand up and I go up to where they're broadcasting and I take chutzpah. out my car. Uh, well, I can't handle them saying they don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I'm a Laker fan. Don't say that. So yeah. I give them my card. And I go, listen, 
I'm the chief of orthopedic surgery at Cedars. A partial tear in your medial collateral ligament. Relax, fellas. He can wear a brace. He can play tonight. It's the playoffs. I give him the card, and I go sit down and wait for the kid to show up. Massive amount of humanity. Now Dave Denholm and Brian Long on the microphone go, we've just learned that Andrew <laughs> Bynum will be okay. He's going to wear a brace. It's a partial tear. The next thing I know, the producer- Is that a Steinfeld impersonation, by the way? <laughs> exactly right. Okay. He, he looks at me, the producer looks at me, and he goes like this with his finger. Come here. You know, silently. Like I'm supposed to now go and join them on the pregame show. <laughs> so now I get up onto the dais where they're working. They put headphones on me with a microphone. And they go, Dr. Clapper, what exactly is a medial <laughs> collateral ligament? And what does a partial tear mean? I said, okay, your knee is a lot like a bicycle. All right. <laughs> Your bicycle is unstable. If you don't hold the seat and the, and the steering wheel, it's two wheels. It's going to tip over, right? So how do you keep the bicycle from falling over? We bolt into the bicycle a kickstand. You put the kickstand down, the bicycle now won't fall on the side, correct? I said, your medial collateral ligament is the kickstand. A partial tear is... The bolts have come loose a little bit, so it's a little wobbly, okay? If you completely tear the medial collateral ligament or you rip the kickstand off of the bike, how else do you keep the bicycle that's unstable from falling on the ground? You lean it against the wall. Externally, you give support. That's what a brace does. The knee joint is like the bicycle, the ligament. And I go on, and they're like, their jaws are dropping because I painted a picture Thank you, Art History. A clapper vision. Love now it. you understand exactly what a partial versus a complete tear is and all the rest. So now one of the guys looks at me and he goes, Dr. Clapper, clearly you have a New York accent. How come you're not a Knicks fan? I said, well, actually, I am a Knicks fan, but not anymore. Why are you a Laker fan? They said. I said, do you have time for me to tell you? They said, <laughs> we got all the time in the world. Tell us why you are a Laker fan. And I said, in the early 90s, I went into practice in 1989, but in the early 90s, believe it or not, I was one of the few people in the country doing arthroscopy of the hip. I did Chuck Norris. People came from far and wide because no one else was basically do, doing them. So who walks into my office in 1994? A seven-foot-one basketball player named Wilt Chamberlain he comes into my office and he says, hey, Dr. Clapper, I heard you're the guy. I don't want to have my hip replaced, but I, I want to have it scoped and clean it up, and you're the guy to do it. I said, well, it's a big honor to meet you as I like looking up because he's seven-foot-one. And uh, he says, so uh, I want to do it right away. Tell me we can do it. So I take out, and I still have... There may be computers, but I still have an appointment book with pencil and you turn the pages because I'm <laughs> still old school. So I take out my appointment book, even though I'm only in practice five years, I was already pretty busy. And I turn the page three months from now and I operate Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Here, let's do it on this Wednesday. Will Chamberlain looks at me like I'm some kind of peanut. He takes my, my appointment book from me. Give me that, he says. And he turns the pages back to next week. 
And he goes, here, call this guy Weinberg. Tell him I'm taking his spot. And so Brian Long says to me, oh, my God, Dr. Clapper, did you call Weinberg and take his surgery spot? And I said, yes, I did. And Dave Denholm says, well, what did you tell Weinberg? I said, I told him something really big came up, <laughs> like seven for what Will Chamberlain. And they start laughing and carrying on. And this, this moment led to me being noticed by the, the, the program director who's been in radio for 40 years, who said, hey, Clapper Vision, what you do, you can't teach that. He says, you should have a radio show. I said, me? How can I have a radio? I don't know anything about the radio. He goes, I've been in the business for 40 years. I'm going to hook you up with an NBA coach. It's going to be called the Weekend Warrior. The, the coach stayed with me for a year, and then he left, and now he's not even doing media. But um, that was 10 years ago, and it's been an unbelievable joyride, and I enjoy it immensely, as you can tell. I, I really enjoy the show. And what I find so interesting about the show is, I, I confess I only listened to it that one time, but um, Robbie Clapper on the radio show has a very different sound and feel as Robbie Clapper that I know in the hospital and, and on this podcast. You were just so, I mean, your, your voice, your rhythms, your, your hypnotic almost, your mesmerizing. I mean, it's, it's so, it was just so enjoyable to listen to. I really, I mean, I love listening to you always, but it, it's kind of, you're a radio guy. Like I really, it's an it's amazing great. thing to be able to enter people's lives from Temecula to Tehachapi to San Diego. People listen on the computer all over the world. And then they wait. And if they want to come see me, you know, they can come see me. So what I always love is... It's all about if they know that you're Robbie. That's right. But I'll always ask them, Jason, what's your favorite story that I've told? Because I love telling stories. and. It's amazing. So here I am in my office about a year ago. I mean, I have, even listening uh, to you tell your bread story was great. Yeah, no, yeah, they're all, they're, they're, it's just, I guess I'm a, <laughs> I'm a natural like you. I'm a natural. You're very good on the, you're good at what you do as well, Jason. I'm not just tit for tat. Not everybody can do what you can do and what I can do. But here I am in my office and I have two 80-year-old African-American women from Compton. They got in the car, they drove to see me because one of the women needs her knee replaced. And when I walk in the exam room, I said, so to what do I owe this pleasure? Who told you to come here? A patient, a doctor? The woman says to me, oh no, Dr. Clapp, I listen to you every Saturday. That's and great. I've been listening to you from the beginning. She says, and in fact, my friend Shirley over here, another 80-year-old African-American woman, she's actually your biggest fan, but she's so mesmerized that she's in the room here with you now. She can't even speak. So I look at her and I go, Shirley, thank you for driving, you know, Sylvia here today. Uh, you don't have to be nervous. It's a pleasure to meet you. Can I ask you a question, Shirley? The lady could barely speak. I said, what's your favorite story that I tell on the radio? She looks and she goes, Dr. Clapper, I love when you talk about when you go surfing in Hawaii. I looked and I go, Shirley, you're an 80-year-old black lady in Compton. What do you know about surfing? She goes, 
nothing. But I can tell Dr. Clapper how much you love it, and that's why I love it. Great. That's the connection that you make because I actually have no training in this. So I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just being myself, bringing the world of art, the world of surgery, and the world of sports, the, the ligaments of kickstand, the pictures I'm painting. And it's, I gave at Columbia's medical school, they asked me to come to give a whole lecture about Clapper vision to the whole medical school class. Wow. So it's a really cool thing to, uh, and, I, and I, it's funny. I don't ever say to myself, I wonder what I'm going to talk about this Saturday. <laughs> it's never comes up because I, I'm excited because I know I'll have something to talk about. I just don't know what it is yet. And it's the greatest. I, I want you to know I had. What's that? What's that? I think that's so impressive that you can just start. That is, um, that's a gift. So a gift. I had, after being on the show um, that day, a doctor I know who, who I don't really interact with randomly texted me saying, I enjoyed hearing you on Clapper's show. And then today, today, I'm walking on the plaza level at Cedar sinai and a guy who I've known at Cedars for a long time who works at Cedars, um, I, I, and I know he stops me, and I don't know why he's stopping me. <laughs> but he's like, I heard you on Clapper's show. <laughs> and, and it was it, today. Today it happened. Did I tell you a story from today? I told my wife. It, it was one of the sweetest things I've, and I've been told many things. So um, I parked my car in the main OR. So now I got to walk across the bridge to get to the pavilion. And as soon as I get on the bridge, there's a guy in his scrubs pushing a fluoroscan, some big piece of equipment. And as I'm walking, he makes eye contact with me. I make eye contact with him and I go, good morning. And he, he doesn't just say good morning. He says, good morning, Dr. Clapper. And I don't know who he is. But that's fine that he knows it. And I, okay, have a nice day, I say to him. And I walk a little further away. He goes, hey, Dr. Clapper, I want to thank you for saving my life. So now I stop. I turn to him. I go, did I take care of you as a patient? Or? He goes, no. He says, a little while back on the radio, and I listened to you on the radio, he says, you told a story that your father said, whenever you get to a red light in Los Angeles or in general, and it turns green, pause and still look both ways because people shoot the light. He said, nobody ever told me that before, but you did because your father told you that. Two weeks after I heard you tell that, I adopted that. Two weeks later, I'm at an intersection. The light turns green, and I'm about ready to go, but I look both ways. And a guy flying 90 miles an hour into the intersection. If I had gone, I would have been killed. This is what oh. the guy says to me this morning. He said, great. so thank you, Dr. Clapper, for that lesson. I said, you know what? That's like the sweetest thing anybody's ever told me before. I'm about to go do surgery. I said, what's your name? You need to call in on Saturday and tell people that story because it makes me feel like my father's still alive. Touching that. So that's today. That's very sweet. I hope he calls in. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I have an NBA basketball player calling in from Texas, Tariq Black, who played with Kobe in his last game. I'm excited to talk to him. 
But I'm more excited to see if that Trey Tech is going to actually, or whatever he does, calls in. I just, and that's the thing. The world is such a crazy place. For two hours, you get to go to this sanctuary and change people's, you know, I always tell them, I just did something nice for you. Now you go find a total stranger, do something nice for them. That's how you'll be thanking me. Like that. Which is what you do, Jason, with this mentorship. Where else are they going to see real life, what we do? And it's a beautiful thing. And I'm honored to be on the program. And I'm honored to be a part of it. Thank you. I look forward to uh, more collaborating. I yep. know. I could, yeah, I could pick your brain forever, but we've taken up an hour of your time. Thank you for all these amazing stories. I really appreciate it. Yeah, the problem is, Lauren, you did not even ask me anything. You just <laughs> was, hello, and it's an hour later. Yeah, I know, and I, and I saw that you were um, a medical consultant for ER, which was like my favorite medical show. So I did want to ask you about that. It was a good, bad experience. It was awesome. I'll tell you one quick story. Yes, please. So they, they wanted to always be as authentic as they possibly could. Mm-hmm. So one night the episode was called Prom Night. Big car accident. Someone, you know, they're in the ER and the whole bit. She needs an external fixator, which is this like bicycle wheel contraption you put on someone's leg with pins. It's a mess. So I got a real one and I drove it rather than just advising them. I drove it to Warner Brothers Studio and I went to give it to them so they had it. So as soon as I walked onto the set, the makeup artist goes, oh, hi, Dr. Clapper, you did my shoulder. Then I go, the guy schlepping the wires goes, oh, hi, Dr. Clapper, you did my hip. You did my, like six people uh, who work peripherally. So the director goes, who the hell is Dr. Clapper? He seems like he operated on everybody that's here. I said, well, you know, I, I've been doing this for a while. He says, <laughs> okay, everybody loves you. You need to be in this episode. So I am now, never, I've never been on television before. I think I saw that. You're like pushing a gurney. Correct. I am right? Pushing, I am pushing I saw gurney. that episode. Right. So I am, so they invite, you should be in this episode we're going to do right now. Now, I have no idea how to be on television. And they have. And I want you to know, I, I'm cutting you off. I barely watched the R. I've only watched a few episodes at the most. And I remember years ago, I'm watching this episode. And I'm like, that's Clapper pushing a gurney. <laughs> this is why it <laughs> happened. And I, but the problem with it is, is they have all these guys, they don't hold the camera anymore. They buckle it like a giant belt and it can now gyroscopically move as they run around. So the director says to me, okay, I got two places to put you. One, you can be an anesthesiologist. I said, am I going to wear a mask? Yes. I said, well, then what the hell do I need to be on TV for if no one's going to see me? I'm not going to do that. Well, then you can be an orderly schlepping the patient from the recovery. I go, okay, then I'll be an orderly. So you can imagine this, Lauren. I, I've never been on TV before. I have no idea. So I'm, I'm in charge of the gurney, and I'm wheeling them from surgery into the recovery room, the orderly, right? And the, and the camera's right here. So I can't help. I'm like, cut, Dr. Clapper. Stop looking in the camera. <laughs> I have no idea. What I, they had to do the take after take after take till I finally, just be natural. Just be an orderly movie. Okay, okay, so that's what the became. <laughs> that's was great. Fun. That's funny that I saw that episode. Yeah. That's so random. I'm going to look for that episode now. I'm going to read yeah, it. Thank you. <laughs> Clapper pushes the gurney. <laughs> anyway, thank you for inviting me. Robbie, this was great. 
Yeah. Thank, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. You got me and in your back you pocket being... whenever you need me, Jason Cohn. Thank you. And back at you. Yep. And Lauren, right. very nice to meet you. Thank nice you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Right. Have a good evening. Okay. <laughs> my pleasure. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can check out more episodes on the evolving sights, smells, and sounds of medicine. Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.